So here, here's what we're doing. We're talking in this class, what are we talking about? We're talking about the interpretive journey. We're trying to learn how do we read the Bible, how do we interpret the Bible. And um, so we're using the Duval and Hayes analogy of two towns, a bridge, river that represents differences between a past culture in time and a modern po- culture in time. And um, imperfect in some ways, but this gives us a good visual of what we're trying to do uh, in when we're reading the Bible, okay? So, so let's, someone walk through this for me. You guys should be experts on this by now. What, what are we trying to do here? Very good. So we, we want to, number one, we want to try to understand the intent of the author, what did the biblical author mean to the audience that he was writing to we call that authorial intent right the intent of the author Um, and and we're thinking about that as it would have been received back in the old town right the ancient uh time of, of the bible okay very good what else do we do okay and uh as we're learning authorial intent what did the author mean we have to identify some things that are different between the biblical time and our time, and that's represented by that river. Things like differences in culture, language, time, situation, um, even things like you know geography and, and customs and figures of speech and all those sorts of things, right? And those help us to understand uh, what did the author mean in the time and place that he wrote. Okay, very good. What's next? Yeah, the, the theological principle, I actually, I actually I, and you see, I've, I've changed it a little bit because it, it's, it's not always like a theological principle, it's just, what's the meaning, right? Is, is it the, the author's point? Uh, maybe it is a point of theology, maybe it's a concept, maybe it's a story that communicates one of God's purposes in, in what he's doing, uh, but whatever it is, the, the, the point of the passage, the point of the story is what we want to take, having understood it in its original context and to its original audience. And that, that, that thought is what we want to bring over in to our own day and age today, believing that the Bible is full of timeless truth. That, that's the premise there. Okay, so from there, what do we do? Yeah, we, uh, yeah number four is, is kind of compare it to Scripture. And, and the idea here being at some point, we, we don't want to read the Bible in isolation, right? We, the way I've described it is we want to take the author's point in the section that we're in and we want to put it into the broader story of what the Bible is teaching, that creation, fall, redemption, uh, restoration or consummation, right? And so we want to look at that in the context of the whole Bible. Uh, the other thing that that does is it gives us a greater appreciation maybe of how our particular story or particular book is fitting into that larger framework it also fills out the theology maybe there's more things we can learn there uh, again not not to read that back into our point but just to appreciate the broader theme the other thing it does is it helps us avoid error because if we come up with something in our story that's out of alignment with the rest of the bible we probably need to go back and and check our arithmetic our, our spiritual arithmetic so to speak to make sure that we interpreted it correctly And then finally, what's number five? Application, right? So having understood the author's point, the the principle, the point of the story, the concept, the 
the attribute of God, whatever it is, now, now we ask the question, what should we do with this? And as I argued a couple of weeks ago with application, if we've done the hard work of interpretation, application should be pretty obvious uh, b- because the application is often built into the interpretation itself. Okay, we good, Drew? All right, so there we go. Okay, so tonight, this, this is fun. So, so what we're doing is we're going from talking about the interpretive journey, the sort of nuts and bolts of how we read and interpret Scripture. Now we're applying that process in different types of literature, different types of books in the Bible. And, of course, we've talked about Old Testament narrative. We've talked about um, uh, David did Gospels and Acts last time. And uh, so what we're going to talk about tonight is reading the Old Testament law. I hope your seatbelts are fastened because I think one of the reasons that we stumble as believers in coming up with well-intended but misguided conclusions and application is we just don't know how to read the Old Testament. And I hope that David's time and narrative was helpful for that. And we're going to take another step in that direction by talking about the law tonight. And um, a little bit technical, I was telling David, you know, there's so much we could talk about here. And I only got an hour and a half and we want to do an example. So um, we won't have time to get into everything. But hopefully this is enough so you kind of go, oh, okay, I see it. And, and then we'll do some examples here at the end. So, so let's start. Let me just ask you a question. You, you got the notes. There's no blanks there, so you can read ahead. But I'd, I'd rather you think with me rather than just read ahead looking for the right answer, okay? So what would you say, what is the law? When you hear the law in the context of the Bible, what, what is that? Okay, a set of commandments that God gave his people to live by. That's a pretty good definition. Good job. Yeah, okay. Do you agree with that? Where where would we go in our Bibles to find a set of instructions that God gave to his people that they could live by? The Pentateuch. Oh, the Pentateuch. And where, where would I find that? I don't know anything about the Bible. Where would I find that? That's okay. Where would I, where would I find that? The first five books of the Bible. Like, like the very beginning is what you're saying. The first five books of the Bible. Why do we call it the Pentateuch? Yeah, five books. Yeah, duh. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the other name for the Pentateuch? The Torah, the Torah, uh-huh. And what's that mean? It means Pentateuch. It's a good guess, Ron. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an educated guess, right? It's plausible. Yeah, sadly, no, that's not what the word means, but uh, you've heard that before, right, Torah? It, it is. It's, it's, it's a Hebrew word, and it means... Law, there you go. See, that's plausible too, right? It means law. So, so sometimes, uh, you know, if, if there were a group of uh, Jewish people here, they wouldn't call it the Pentateuch. They would call it the Torah. The, the first five books are known as the books of the law, so they call them the Torah. So, okay, so when we're thinking about this, now you can look at your notes. The books of the law are usually what we're talking about, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. When we talk about law as a type of literature now, a, a, like uh, like the sports page is a type of literature, a fictional novel is a type of literature, uh, the comics are a type of literature. We're talking about type of literature. Law refers to instructions given to the nation of Israel as part of the Mosaic Covenant, roughly from Exodus 20 to Exodus 34. And you, you could make an argument that 
law actually goes back to Genesis 12 where the Abrahamic covenant is made. But, but really we don't get into true law literature it really until those chapters of Exodus on through the end of the Torah. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Now, um, this is where we got to pull the car over a little bit from what your book talks about and, and think about the covenant. And this is hard because if I say covenant and I start talking about covenants, you may go, right? So if, if you want to go back, um, shameless plug here, but I do this because I love you. If you want to go back on our website and look at my series on Hebrews, I do a whole eight-part series on the covenants. And I think that is really crucial information to have as we think about the law as well, well as I mean, just the whole Bible in general. The covenants are a key part of the whole Bible. So it's, it's a series of uh, Sunday school messages on Hebrews. If you just click on Hebrews, uh, you can find it. But anyway, so what I want to talk about tonight is not all the covenants, but just the Mosaic covenant, okay? The Mosaic covenant. So what is that? Uh, the Mosaic covenant is a conditional contract between God and the Israelites in which God promised blessings and protection to the Israelite people in exchange for their obedience to the laws of the covenant. Now, I want you to notice something obvious about this. And David and I feel strongly about this, so I'm going to point this out right now. What does the Mosaic covenant not include? I may be commander obvious here, but this is an important part of the Old Testament, right? What does it not include that we think might be kind of important? Oh, okay, yeah, there's nothing particularly about Christ here. That's right. What's that? Gentiles, yeah, there's nothing about Gentiles. That's true. There's no plan of salvation. Why is that important? This is not intended to be a plan of salvation. Now, I'm gonna, I, I, I need to prove this to you, okay? But just for sake of argument, why is that significant? It is. It's the whole Bible is about a plan of salvation. So when we read, let's say, would you say the Ten Commandments are included in the law? Part of the Mosaic Covenant? Okay, nod your head because that's what Exodus 20 starts with, okay? The Ten Commandments were never designed by God to be a... Did you know that? Okay. Okay. A lot of Christians are confused about that. It's not inten- it's not, it was not intended to be a plan of salvation today. It was not intended to be a plan of salvation to the nation of Israel. Okay. What, what, did, what has God said from very early on in the Bible all the way through the end of Revelation? What is salvation supposed to come through? The Savior, the Messiah, whether it's the seed of the woman all the way back in Genesis 3, whether it's God saying over and over and over through the stories of Genesis, the stories of Exodus, the stories of Ruth and Samuel and all of that, that it was always, look to me for your salvation, God says, right? You, you need me to act on your behalf in order to be saved. Is this making your brain hurt? This is important because... Uh, understanding this was not intended to be a plan of salvation, that salvation was always something that God said himself that he would do on behalf of his people. 
And of course, God's going to do that as the plan of salvation unfolds through his son. And we get that program sort of revealed progressively as we keep reading the Bible. Okay, but that's what we're talking about. Okay, it's a conditional contract. In fact, there are there are archaeological finds where scholars can go back and recognize that what God did in framing the Mosaic Covenant was to use sort of the format of a common contract of that day. And that's we won't get into that. That's a whole nother interesting discussion but but suffice it to say God, god's using a format that the people would have been somewhat familiar with in that day and age the covenant was inaugurated in exodus 19 and it concludes with the death of jesus okay and we'll say well why is that well, let's turn in our bibles just to see where this starts in exodus chapter 19 <clears throat> So uh, again, if we get a running start into Exodus, we know that Exodus begins, you know, a new king arose in Egypt who didn't know, which means we need to go back and read Genesis, right? There's one story, right? So we we get that running start there. Um, Israel grows in numbers. Uh, The Egyptians start getting nervous, so they put them into slavery. They give the command to kill the babies. God spares Moses. He grows up to be the deliverer of Egypt. God delivers Egypt using Moses and Aaron as the spokesman. And uh, you know the story about the Red Sea crossing and all that. And then, okay, so they make it to Sinai. Remember, the whole point was, you know, my people need to go into the wilderness uh, and and I'm going to reveal myself and my law. So in chapter 19, we see them arrive at Sinai. And uh, there's some commands given here about, you know, tomorrow God's going to meet with them and God gives some uh, instructions there. Uh, Verse 10, go to the Lord and consecrate them today for tomorrow and uh, uh, today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So they're preparing this moment where God is going to address his people and inaugurate this covenant and uh, begin to give him give them the instructions, the law of the covenant itself. And then if we flip the page, uh, they wake up on the morning of the third day, verse 18, on Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire and the smoke ascended. I mean, they wake up to this trumpet blast and the earth is quaking and there's smoke on the mountain and it's just, ugh. And Moses goes up the mountain and God says, go back down and make sure the people know the rules. And so he comes back up, that happens and then finally, in chapter 20, verse 1, then, spoke, then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's the introduction to the covenant. You shall have no other gods before me. And he begins with what we know as the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. Okay, so that's where the covenant starts. Um, we don't find out till much later how the covenant concludes, um, but... If we were to look at passages such as in your notes there, I just put those there for your reference. Hebrews is most helpful on this because Hebrews goes all the way back. Hebrews is like the, the commentary in that it explains the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant, its use, its ultimate insufficiency as a plan of salvation. Remember, that was not the intended point, and the Jews had misunderstood that. And, uh, and then talking about uh, Christ and his and his work and the better covenant called the new covenant 
that he inaugurates that is representative of that plan of salvation. Okay. So why do we need to know all this? The Israelites were promised blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Okay, those are, that's explicit there in the text. And the main goal of the Mosaic Covenant was to establish Israel as a nation. That's the point of it. God's saying, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my light to the nations. You're going to be my spokespersons um, so that people will know me. Um, and, and you remember that. Um, remember, we, we could read it. We won't take the time to read it now. But remember the whole exodus and the plagues and all of that? Do you, do you remember what God told him that they were going to do? God says, I, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and, and these plagues are going to happen. Why? So that all of the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That was the plan from the beginning. And really, that's the same theme that plays out for the rest of the Old Testament is God uh, calling this nation of Israel to himself that they would be a testimony and a light uh, so that the whole earth eventually would come to know uh, the Lord and know his ways. So does that make sense? So if, if you keep that in mind, then when you're reading Leviticus and you're going, what on earth is this supposed to do with my life you know, as a Christian today? If, if you read Leviticus in isolation and, and just scratch your head, you're going to be very frustrated or more likely you're going to arrive at an application that's wrong because you're like, I got to apply this. It's, by, it's, by, it's God's word. It's important. I need to apply it. The right way to apply it is to see the, the Old Testament law as being the main instructions under this Mosaic covenant that fits into this broader idea of what God is doing in creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay. So some of the provisions, uh, the law is presented in terms of the covenant, right? It, it reinforced the necessity of worshiping God. That, that's the main thing, right? Uh, there are about 613 commands in the law. I didn't count those. Someone counted those for me, and so I'm, it's somewhere in that ballpark. There were five particular offerings of blood sacrifices that were part of that covenant. There were dietary restrictions, and there were some uh, uh, penalties that that are, that were serious enough to uh, involve the death penalty. And again, what are we reading? What we're reading are the stipulations of this covenant. These are the regulations for God's nation called Israel. Which is why if you read the book of Numbers and then you were to go down to the Hood County Courthouse and start pulling through you know, laws on the books, now that's going to start to sound very similar because that's what you're reading. You're reading the instructions for the nations. Okay, Questions on that? Does that make sense? Not a plan of salvation. These are regulations of a covenant which God gave to the Israelites in order to establish them as a nation. Now, with that in mind, it's important to understand that there are different types of law given in the first five books. Now, probably you've heard something like this. There are um, uh, moral laws. There are civil laws. There are dietary laws, and sometimes you hear that distinction. And, and you know what? That, that's not an illegitimate way to look at the instructions because we can categorize them in those three buckets, okay? But as you probably read in, in your textbook, or, or you will read it next, this next week, I don't think that's the best way to categorize the law, you know, dietary laws, civil laws, moral laws, um, and, and, and this is what um, Fee and Stewart argue, and I think it's a good argument, 
that if we come up with those three categories, we're having to impose those three categories on the text. Meaning God doesn't give us the laws in those three categories. Thematically, they work, right? No problem with that. But we're, we're imposing categories on the law that God didn't really intend. So maybe there's a better way of doing it. And, and the better way of categorizing the law, if you read Fee and Stewart, is to think of them as didactic laws and case laws. And let me just explain those because these are words you're probably not familiar with. A didactic law, or um, they, they call it apodictic, um, so there's your word for the night class. It, all that means is it's, it's where God gives direct instructions. The way to remember this is these are the commands that start like this. You shall not or you shall. It's a direct command and it's unqualified. That's the thing to see here. It's unqualified. It's just a direct command. So for some examples, do not lie, do not steal, don't defraud your neighbor, don't reap the, don't reap the edges of your field, right? So that the poor have... Uh, something they can go eat from, okay? And uh, so that's, that's one type of law. And as you read through uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, you will see laws that sound just like that. You shall, you shall not. And uh, so even in saying that, what, what's probably the most famous of the laws that sound like that? The Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments would be an example of apodictic law or didactic law, or you can just remember them as direct instructions. Now, one thing that uh, the, the textbook makes... Uh, a, a big point about, and this is important, is to recognize that, that those instructions are paradigmatic. You say, what's that mean? It means they're designed to be examples, not exhaustive instructions. So, uh, you shall not lie, okay? The Bible doesn't say, don't lie, don't use, you, use innuendo, don't use a smoke screen. Don't tell half the truth. Don't conflate your story. Don't get defensive to get the conversation somewhere else. It doesn't say all that. It just says, don't lie. And it expects you to know, okay, what God is intending by this is that he wants us to be honest in, in all of its forms, right? Does that make sense? So it, it's, uh, it's paradigmatic, or we might say it's, it's an example that demonstrates the spirit of what God wants it's not intending to be exhaustive in some way. Okay. Makes sense? Okay. The, the other type of law is what we call case law or casuistic law. You can just think that as laws that are conditional. So there's direct instructions, you shall, you shall not, and then there's case law. If this happens, then you should do this. And, and we read examples of that in the Bible. So uh, if you borrow something from your neighbor and break it, you should make full restitution. That's the Keith Palmer version of Exodus 22. If you find your enemy's ox wandering away, return it to him. That's ex okay, Exodus 23. So they're if-then statements, right? So um, uh, in Hood County, if, uh, if you make a... If your house is worth a certain amount of money, then you will pay a certain amount of taxes. If your house is worth a different amount of money, you will pay a different amount of taxes, depending on the bracket. Okay, that's sort of if-then sort of things, right? Um, those are conditional laws or casuistic or I think it's easier just to say case law. Now, as you read through the Bible, one of the things you're going to notice is some of them are direct, you shall, you shall not, and others are going to be if this then do that. You say, why is that significant? Um, as best as we can tell, there are no 
case laws repeated in the New Testament. Hmm, that should make you think. Why might that be so? Why would there be no case laws repeated in the New Testament? Case law represents what? Why did God give that to the nation of Israel? Let me ask you an easier question. Why does Hood County have case law? Courts? Legal issues? And what are all those things designed to do? What's that? Justice. Yeah, why do we have laws like this? Yeah, right. Because it, it, it betters society. It keeps people in order. It keeps bad guys you know, out of the city streets, right? It, it, case law is designed to govern a people, right? Does that make sense? These are God's instructions to the nation. When we get to the New Testament, uh, God is not giving instructions to a nation, right? He, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a theocracy. It's not God is, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the Lord over a nation. So those case laws, we don't find those in the New Testament because God's not giving instructions to a nation. And, and we could footnote, you know, America is a Christian nation. But that's too controversial, so we won't talk about that. But you see, that's not God's point, is it? That's, he's not giving instructions to some sort of Christian nation. He's giving instructions to who? In the New Testament? To his church. Okay, and the, and the church is, is one people, right? Local assemblies, but one people. So we're, we're not dealing with, uh, you know, a nation or... Um, a state or a city even, we're dealing with uh, the church. Now, let me ask you this. Do we see any didactic laws repeated in the New Testament? Yes, we do. Okay, so why don't you remember that? Come back to that. So what were the purposes of God giving this law? Um, and, this, and this starts to get into, as we're reading is there a value for us in reading these sorts of things? Um, well, if you're still in Exodus, just uh, turn with me a few uh, a few pages over to Leviticus chapter 19. Now, you know this is a very... Um, you've heard this verse before in Leviticus chapter 19. Because um, you start reading Exodus, you start reading Leviticus, and you go, what is this all about? Well, God gives his own commentary on what he's doing. Chapter 19, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be, for I am. See, that's what God is doing. What does holiness mean in this context? Okay. You say set apart, unique, pure. But what does it mean to be uh, holy as he's holy. Yeah, to think and act the way he does. And what what is that going to do? That's going to set the nation Israel apart 
from everybody else, isn't it? And that, that's part of God's design for Israel to be a light to the nations. Um, so the, the, the law reveals the holiness of God and his standard of righteousness, doesn't it? Well, let me ask you this. I'm getting ahead of myself, but does God ever change? No. Um, so as you're reading your Old Testament and as you're reading the law, if you learn something about the character and nature of God, is that something that might be applicable to you today? Yes, it is. Because God doesn't change. It, it, it kind of goes back to you know, narrative, right? You know, if, if God is the hero of the story and we're learning something about him, well, that something about him is applicable to me today. Maybe in a different context, but nonetheless true. Number two, it provides rules of conduct for Old Testament believers. If we were just continue on uh, in Leviticus, uh, you know, right, right where you're at there, verse three, every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods for I am the Lord your God. What's that all about? God's saying, be holy because I am holy. Let me explain to you some principles. Let me give you some examples of that, right? Here's how you treat your parents. Here's how you handle worship, right? And he starts giving these examples. Why? Because I'm the Lord. Because that is a reflection of my nature, of my character when you follow those, those uh, guidelines. So this, this, number two, is to provide rules of conduct for Old Testament believers. Number three, to set particular times for corporate and private worship. There were seven religious holidays. We could turn to Leviticus 23, just turn the page. You can see uh, those holidays from... Uh, uh, the Day of Atonement, to Passover, to the Feast of Booths, um, uh, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, all, all those sorts of things. Uh, number five, to set the Israelites distinct or set apart from other nations. There are times that God says, do this because it reflects my character. There's other times God says, do this just because it's going to make you different from the other nations. And God's trying to make a distinction between Israel as his people and the other nations. Uh, and, and, and just a footnote on that, that's why if you read something in the law, like, oh, they weren't allowed to eat pork. That's why we don't say, okay, I'm going to be godly and give up bacon. See, if I make that logical but wrong conclusion it's because I'm failing to see that sometimes God gave commands that were not moral in nature, but were simply ways of setting the people apart. And, and actually, it's interesting, if you read in uh, Fee and Stewart, they have, they have some plausible ideas about maybe why God did that. And one of them was uh, pork for some of the surrounding pagan nations was a staple diet item. And so maybe that's partially why God's saying no pork, simply because it would draw a clear distinction between the Israelites and the surrounding nations. So we don't know that for sure, but that, that could be the case. Uh, number five, to isolate the Jewish nation so Gentiles would be alienated from the promise and blessings of the covenant. You say, whoa, 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 that doesn't sound right. Well, if, if, if we, that's, that's something that comes in Revelation, uh, the, progress, the progress of Revelation but that's what scripture actually says is that uh, there was a, um, an intent by God to hold up the Jewish nation so that the Gentiles would say, I want that relationship with God too. I need that relationship with God too. 
And of course, we know in God's unfolding plan, he's going to make a way for the Gentiles to be grafted into some of those blessings. Uh, to reveal sin, right? Have you noticed this? Here, here, here's something you can do when you read your Old Testament, especially as you're reading uh, those, those didactic commands. Um, you go, I am a horrible person. I, on my best day, I don't do that perfectly. Which goes back to the point, the, the, the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant were never designed to be a pathway of salvation. They were designed so that the people go, how do we do this? We can't do this, Lord. Um, God gave the commands, uh, but he did not give, um, he, he did not intend that uh, as, as a means of their salvation. Rather, it was a means to show them their sin. And uh, of course, Paul talks about that in Romans later on. And I'm sorry, that one is off my screen and it's off your screen. What, what does it say? To make the people sin more? That's interesting. Remember Paul says, I, I wouldn't know what coveting would be unless the law said to covet. And then that law produced into me all sorts of coveting. It's like if we take our, 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 our teenagers over here and we say, hey, uh, we're going to go to a party and uh, we're going to put them in a room and there's going to be a big old plate of freshly baked cookies. <sighs> you can smell them, right? You know, and, and just at the point, we're going to put a sign there that says you can't eat the cookies. And that is going to increase their temptation, isn't it? Right? Just like it would us. So, again, and, and you understand, God, God's not creating a stumbling block there. What he's doing is he's letting the law expand our own understanding of our fallenness and our sin. Um, next one. So, to show that it's impossible to keep the law perfectly, right? God even says that. God says that all throughout the Old Testament, right? You need me. You need my forgiveness. You need my grace. You need my mercy. Um, it was not intended to be a path of salvation. To drive people to see their need for a Savior, right? We, we know that. The purpose was not to establish a means of salvation. Um, and that does go back even to the time before Moses, Genesis 15, 6, where uh, Abraham... Uh, believed God and, and the narrator tells us that it was credited to him as righteousness. His faith was credited as righteousness. Okay, that's always been the path of salvation. Okay, so those are some purposes of the law. So with that in mind, let me give you some interpretation helps and then we'll, um, we'll, we're going to work through a, an example or two here, okay? Read the Old Testament law books in the context of the overall story of the Bible. Are you getting that? Every time we, we sit down and talk to you about prophets or narrative or whatever, we're going to say, read that within the overall narrative of the Bible. Do not parachute into your Bible unaware of the surrounding context that you just dropped into. Read it within the larger story. Read the Old Testament law book specifically within the context of the Mosaic Covenant as established between the Israelites and God. We just talked about that. Some parts of the law are timeless in that they reflect God's moral will for all people. These commands will be repeated in the New Testament as part of the New Covenant. One of the hints we get is it's, the, it's those didactic portions, the, the you shall, you shall not, that tend to be the timeless principles. The case law, the if-then, remember, th those are more governing the nation in terms of their, their law codes there. So uh, usually the timeless principles are going to be uh, the didactic style uh, presentation there. You say, well, how do we know if they're timeless or not? We know if they're timeless if God points to his character. We know they're timeless 
if they are repeated in the New Testament. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, The Mosaic Covenant is fulfilled by Christ through his life and through his death. And and again, this is is where um, I think Christians misunderstand this. So let's just, I, I can't take too much time to develop this, but let's just look at a couple of passages that, that might be a bit misunderstood. Now let's look at the first one in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, or uh, Jesus, <laughs> Pastor Terry, uh, who loves Jesus, um, was just talking about this uh, as he was going through the, the Beatitudes a couple of Sundays ago and uh, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and um, as Jesus begins his discussion, uh, one of the things he's going to talk about is... Uh, really understanding the intent of the law and analogy okay here's another footnote when the new testament uses the word law what is it referred to old covenant mosaic what's that commands of god Okay, so what you guys are all telling me is it depends. Is it a means to, sa- to attain my own salvation? Is it the Mosaic Covenant? Is it just the instructions of God? Well, how are we going to know the difference? How are we going to know what law means? The context, very good. We have to read the context, especially when, and, and you remember Pastor Terry spent weeks on this in Romans, where Paul's, or where Paul's arguing about the law and its use, and it's like one of the things you have to ask is, what is he even talking about? Because law can be used in any number of different ways, and we have to let the context clarify what it is we're talking about. So look at chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17. Look at this. What do we see here? Do not think that I came to abolish, what does he say? The law or the prophets. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't come to abolish, but to do what? To fulfill. Okay. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished okay so law and the prophets is code language for what yeah that's the entirety of the old testament right you know so we we could sometimes it's called the law the prophets and the writings sometimes it's called the law and prophets and the psalms where psalms would be the first book in the writings are you guys okay with that so if we look at our old testaments the bible the 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 um, the 39 books of the old testament are in a particular order in the Jewish Bible, what they would say is their, is their Bible, the books are organized in a threefold division. You're aware of that? The threefold division is what? The law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, the, uh, yeah, the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And so if we take T, N, K... T, Torah, N, Nevi'im, K, Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings, we take each one of those letters and put them together, 
we get Tanakh, which is what Jews call their Bible. Have you heard that before? Okay. So that, that's, the point is, the books are in a different order. So when we read Law and Prophets in the Bible, that's shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament. Jesus is going to say in another place, uh, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, because in the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is the first book in that third section called the Writings. So it's the same way, he's just saying the whole of the Old Testament. So what's he saying here? He's saying, I didn't come to do away with all of that. Which is why we need to avoid the common Christian error that we're supposed to be only people of the New Testament and ignore the Old Testament. Because the New Testament is built on top of what? Yeah, it's one story. It's a progressive revelation. And Jesus is saying, we're not abandoning that Old Testament. In fact, I'm here to do what? To fulfill a lot of what it talked about. And particularly when you get to the the next verse there, he says that I didn't come to abolish the law. I came specifically to fulfill the law. And and then he goes on. Actually, he's going to spend the next uh, two and a half chapters talking about Um, some of the timeless principles that we found in the law. But what this shows us is that Jesus came not to abolish the Old Testament, not to do away uh, with with it and say, um, you know, that wasn't important. He came to fulfill it. And that's what Paul's going to argue. We don't have time to do this. Paul argues this in Romans. He argues it in Galatians. The writer to Hebrews argues this, that Jesus comes to fulfill that Mosaic covenant, that part of the law, bringing it to a close and making a way for the new covenant which allows um, us to know Christ by faith, uh, in uh, faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. So again, we, we see that even in Jesus fulfilling the Mosaic law, that that was not intended to be a means of salvation to people. And I just threw a lot at you, so let me stop and make sure everybody's tracking. Does that make sense? And again, we could, we we can and should do so much more, uh, maybe some other time. But the point here is to see that Jesus comes to fulfill that Mosaic covenant through His life and death, and that and that's why, that's why there is a a freedom uh, for Jews who were bound by that law in Christ, right? They are they are um, they are safe from its condemnations. Okay, keep going. Now, some laws from the Old Testament are brought to an end in the New Testament and thus no longer apply. Um, so let me ask you this: um, yeah, the whiteboard's over there. Uh, how many of the Ten Commandments appear in the New Testament? Okay, which is what's number four? Okay. Um, uh, sure. Yeah. Thank you, David. Let, let's. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Let's do this. Um, maybe you've never done this before, but I want you together as a class exercise. We're going to figure out where all the ten commandments are in the New Testament. All except apparently number four. Now, anybody grew up in a Catholic church? Lutheran Church, 
I was embarrassingly old before I figured this out. The Catholics and the Lutherans number the Ten Commandments differently than the other, than, than, the, than, than all the other Protestant denominations. So if you say number four, as soon as you said number four, I always go, I got to do it in my head because I learned them in a different order. In, in the Catholic and Lutheran church, they, they divide up what we typically think of as the Tenth Commandment into two commandments, and they combine the first two. So anyway, that, we'll talk about that another day. Um, just know the order's different. Okay, so where would we find, you shall have no other gods before me? Class exercise. I'm, I'm just the scribe, so where are we going to find that? And you can, some, some of you are on your phone. That's cool. That's that, Use it, man. We... <laughs> Okay, okay, where will we find that? <laughs> Matthew something, something, I will accept that. Let's narrow it down. We've got a few chapters. We've got a... Now, if, if you went to 40, you'd, you'd probably be in Mark by then, yeah. Okay, verses 40. Okay, what chapter? Where would we find the two great commandments in the Gospels? Yeah, love God, love your neighbor, right? Those are the, okay, I know, I know you know what they are. Where do we find them? Give up. Good job. Matthew 22, okay. Very good. What's commandment number two according to the typical Protestant ordering? Yeah, so no idols, right? Where would we find in the New Testament a repetition of that timeless principle? Okay, where would we find that? I think the easiest place to find that, it's the very last line of a book. And I'll start it for you and you'll know exactly which book it is. Yeah, little children. Who you, who says little children? John does. Which book? <laughs> I'm frustrating her. Right All right. Yes, yes. It's in First John. It's the very last, very last book of First John, or very last line of First John. First line, chapter five. Okay. Okay. What do we got next? Well, not the Sabbath. We're not quite that. That's four. Uh, Mike was right that that's this is Sabbath. Okay, no. We'll say swearing, which is we think of swearing as four-letter words, but we're thinking it, you know, the Lord's name. Yeah, where do we find that? Matthew talks about it about taking vows. Who else talks about it? James, right? Okay, so we could say Matthew, is it five or six? And James, 
Chapter 3 is about the tongue, right? 3 or 4. Okay. Sabbath, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Where's that in the New Testament? Okay, all right. That's true. Yeah, the New Testament talks about the Sabbath. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So we have some discussion about the Sabbath, some clarification about the Sabbath, and actually, if you really want to get in the weeds. The book of Hebrews explains more than any other book how the concept and purpose of Sabbath develops throughout Revelation history. Sabbath starts as a memorial on the seventh day of the week. By the time we're done reading in Hebrews, it's a future eternal rest for believers. A Sabbath rest, uh, the way the author describes it. So the Sabbath is tricky because the Sabbath actually has an evolution as you, as you read about it, uh, starting in uh, Exodus all the way through the book of Hebrews. So right now, we're going to say N-A for not applicable because we don't have a direct command to keep the Sabbath. So I know what you're thinking. There's a lot of Christians that think that Sunday is the Sabbath day and we're keeping the Sabbath and, and I would respectfully say, I think that's a misunderstanding of the Sabbath. There's no command there. Um, plus, the Sabbath day, according to the Bible, is Saturday, not Sunday. So, um, correct. Yeah, and, and the Seventh-day Adventists actually get the Sabbath right, because they worship on Saturday. Okay, what's five? What's that? Okay. Okay, Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians 5, or excuse me, it's, it's Ephesians 6, excuse me. Um, okay, what's next? No murder, nor no adultery, no no stealing. And this is easy because all of those are quoted where? Uh, yeah. Um, these first two are covered in Matthew uh, 5. Matthew 19 covers all of them. But all, Matthew 5 is correct too, for the first two at least. Okay, what about nine? I'm running out of room here. I put too much space up there. What about nine? Nine is what? Do not bear false witness. So we can just say no lying. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're that's where we got that. Mm -hmm. Uh, 19 does? Okay. We'll put that there. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And then 10 is what? No coveting, right? Where do we find that? Give me a verse. Okay, which says what? Very good. Okay, so what did we just do? We discovered that there are some of the Ten Commandments that God intended to be timeless principles, timeless moral principles, because they're repeated in the New Testament. Make sense? How, you say, how do we know that? Because they're repeated in the New Testament. Okay. We want to be really careful to not assume that a principle under the old Mosaic Covenant that's not repeated in the New Testament, we want to be a little cautious because we, we it, it may be obvious, you know, if it's associated with one similar or something like that, but we need to be careful if it's not repeated. But that helps us to know um, uh, what, what is intended to be timeless. What about the dietary laws? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, this starts in the Gospels. Um, we, we see the, the famous vision of Peter in Acts 10, the sheet coming down from heaven with the unclean animals. And really, that represented what? The, 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 the point of that was not bacon is good, although that was, that was a corollary to it. What was the point of that? The Gentiles, yeah. The Gentiles were going to made to be partakers of some of the spiritual blessings of the covenant given to Israel. So it's really about Jew and Gentile having equal access to salvation. But as a... As an indication of that, what are we going to do with the dietary laws? We're going to get rid of them. Which points back, possibly, to God's point in giving the Jews dietary laws. And, and you know, you see, I was at Mardell, the Christian bookstore, one time. And I'm at the checkout, and they got the, the impulse buy items right there. And they had, like, you know, the, the judge's diet or the... Because they find these lists of foods in the Old Testament, and they say, oh, this is God's secret recipe to... You know, you know, eternal youthfulness, and you know, here's God's plan for bodily health. You know, and it's like that's not the intent of the dietary laws. God, God wasn't giving us some secret, you know, super secret recipe for, to longevity if you just follow this diet. What was He saying? You are to be holy as I am holy. Right? He's making a distinction, and so perhaps the removal of the dietary laws in that vision indicate that those dietary laws primarily served to set the Jews apart as unique from the other nations. And that was God's purpose in that. So dietary laws don't apply. Sabbath laws, the Sabbath gets changed uh, from a a daily uh, rest to a future uh, eternal rest. Uh, Some laws from the Old Testament are expanded upon in the New Testament. If If you still have Matthew open, just look back here. Uh, some of the, those Ten Commandments um, are expanded upon. And we, we could argue this. We, we could say this was God's intent all along. And that tends to be my take that when he says you shall not murder, he includes the attitude 
the heart behind the act, not just the act. But to clarify that, that's what Jesus is going to say here. It's not just the act, it is the heart. And uh, I think that that's always been the case because we can go back to the Old Testament time and time again where God rebukes the people. Why? Because they're going through the rituals, but their heart is far from God. And that was one of the main messages of the prophets, right? You know, your heart's not in this. So I think that was probably the intent of the law all along. But just to clarify, Jesus is going to expand on that. Chapter 5, verse 21 of Matthew, you've heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, but I say... Uh, Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And he goes on to make that point. Same in 527, committing murder. Let's remember that that, uh, sexual lust towards someone that uh, is not your wife makes you guilty as well. And uh, we have um, making false vows, chapter 5, verse 33. And he's saying, you know what, don't just just make your yes, yes and no, no. Um, So on and so forth. Love your neighbor verse 43, and then it, this was not in the law, of course, hate your enemy. That was the, the popular uh, thinking of the day. And he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So some of those laws from the Old Testament are expanded upon, or, or I might, that, that was the language of uh, Fee and Stewart. I would say shown what their, their actual intent was meant to be. And remember that the New Testament is built on top of the Old Testament. It does not replace the Old Testament in a way that renders it as having no value today. And, and sometimes Christians think about that. They think, you know, we're, we're the church. The New Testament is our book. The Old Testament is nice for some stories and, you know, some coloring pages for the kids during the sermon. But we don't really take the Old Testament seriously. And I hope you see in this class that that's just wrong. The New Testament is representative of the the culmination of God's revelation. It's the culmination of the story, but it does not replace the Old Testament. The New Testament rests on the Old Testament, and we can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Um, I think David said this, and others have said this, but this is really important, that that we, we don't primarily look to the New Testament in order to understand the Old Testament. It's actually reversed. We can only understand the New Testament because we've understood the Old Testament. And that and that's that's a there is there is some play both ways. Yes, but we don't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament because one is built on top of the other and one depends on the other. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So th- there, there is another way of understanding the Bible that a lot of godly people ascribe to where they they go to the end of the movie and look backward to understand the first part of the movie. And, you know, there, there's some insights gained there, but but they're they are doing that discounting that they are doing that at the expense of what the author actually meant in the Old Testament. And as, as we are arguing, as we're presenting, you know, God, God, it, God gave the story in the order that he gave it on purpose. It's one story. And so we're understanding all of these things, recognizing that you don't know what John the Baptist means when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That doesn't make any sense 
unless you've read Exodus and know what this Passover lamb is, that, that, right? It doesn't make any sense. So, so um, yes, we, we, can, we can look at the New Testament and, and, and see, you know, some of the neat things that God was doing in the Old Testament, but we understand the New Testament best by understanding the Old Testament, not the other way around. Okay, um, but the main thing is we're, we're not devaluing the Old Testament. We can't devalue the Old Testament. It, I'll say this, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong. The Old Testament is just as much God's Word as the New Testament is. Okay. Now, we, 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 we like the end of the story because that's where Revelation is going. And, and, there's no, and, and we, we believe Christ is the culmination. So when we beat that drum hard, we should beat that drum hard. But we never, ever, ever want to look at the Old Testament as less important or less God's Word. It has just as important a function as the New Testament, but all in the proper order. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, here's some perspectives to consider, and here I'm leaning heavily on Fee and Stewart and uh, a former pastor named Rick Holland who did... Uh, he, he was the first person that did a message that I heard on how Christians relate to the Old Testament that, that really kind of helped me. And I was in seminary, so I'm, I'm getting classes on this, but for some reason his message... I went... I did this today. I dug up my notebook from 2001 where Rick did this sermon. And um, I just remember it was really, really helpful. And uh, so thanks to Pastor Rick Holland and Fee and Stewart. So here, these are just some perspectives, and then we're going to turn this into a process, okay? Embrace the law as a portion of God's Word written for you, but not directly to you. And that's Fee and Stewart's language. Meaning... There is a value in reading the Old Testament law. We need to read it. We've talked about its purpose, and there is value in that purpose. But what we don't want to do is read it thinking, this is God telling me what to do today, because that's not always the case. That's not really the intent. Number two, embrace the law as the guardian until Jesus came. Let's look at a commonly misunderstood passage here for a moment. Uh, and I, I used to believe this until I actually studied the passage. You know, sometimes you just kind of believe what you believe because you heard what you heard. And um, in Galatians, uh, Paul, Paul is actually arguing with uh, some Judaizers here, people that thought the Old Testament law, the same things we're talking about, played a more active role, uh, a binding role actually, in the Christian community, the church community. And so part of what he's trying to do as he moves into his argument in chapter 3 is explain what is, what was the sort of proper use of the law. And he says in chapter 3, uh, verse, we'll pick it up in 23, he says um, before, well, let's pick it up in 19. Why the law then? Uh, why, why is the law necessary if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and goes all the way back to Abraham? That's what he's been arguing in chapter 3. Why the law then? Listen to this. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, that's Messiah, would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. So is the law then contrary to the promise? May it never be. So what is he saying? He's saying, if salvation was always by grace through faith, why did God add the law? Now, notice, not as a method of salvation. That goes back to the point we were making there, right? Instead, he says, if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. He says the point has never been that the law was a pathway to salvation. 
verse 22, but the scriptures have shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So what was the purpose of the law? Everybody goes, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm not doing so well, you know, keeping the moral will of God. That was the purpose in that way, given to the Jews, right? Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become, my Bible says, our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may justify by faith. The, the, there's, a, there's a translation history here, but the NASB says tutor, and that implies that, that the law is sort of leading us um, you know, to help, to help get us to Jesus. And that, that actually is true in that the law brings conviction of sin and it's not a pathway of salvation. So we're supposed to say, what shall we do? But that's not what Paul means here. By tutor, the, the word's probably better translated guardian or overseer, meaning the law was given uh, to sort of keep regulation until Christ came. And... Um, and then, as he says there, so that we may be justified uh, by faith. And then he says in 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under that guardian. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Making that clear there. So it's a guardian uh, of people until Jesus comes. Number three, embrace the law as the regulator of God's sanctification. In other words, when we find moral law, timeless law repeated in the New Testament, those are God's regulations or instructions for sanctification. So for example, when we look at the New Testament and we read all of this, what is this, is this a, is this a New Testament way to salvation? We just keep the law? No, no, no. Salvation we just read is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So what's the purpose of instructions then? It's not a pathway to salvation. What is it? It's a guide to sanctification. God is saying, this is who I am. This is what is right. You've been made uh, 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 forgiven by God. You're a part of my family. Now walk in my ways. He's saying, as, in its essence, be holy as I am holy. It's the same thing. But now redeemed in Christ, we can actually grow in these areas in particular ways. We're free to walk in newness of life, as Paul says. That's why we don't look at the instructions the the commands here and say we believe in grace and we ignore everything the bible says that we ought to do because these are actually the the, these are the the signposts the compass the uh the, the map for sanctification number four embrace the law as a reflection of god's sovereignty in other words when you're reading the old testament law remember this is a record of god's instructions to israel and that reflects his good purposes Not necessarily like, here's something I can do today, but when you read the Old Testament, say, that was God regulating his nation, that they would be a light to the Gentiles. And uh, and as he's going to say later in the New Testament, remember, we as Gentiles get grafted in to some of the promises given uniquely to them, Not, not in the Mosaic Covenant in particular, but through the people of God nonetheless. So when we're reading that, we're saying we're reading about God's wonderful plan in the past and uh, those reflect his good purposes uh next one embrace the law as a demonstration of god's grace you say how is the law grace i thought it's law and grace and those are opposites no no no. 
it showed Israel who God was and made his will clear to them. Do you know how many people, from people in Papua New Guinea to people in Cambodia to people in uh, the Middle East to people in India, are, people are going crazy trying to appease their God by doing all sorts of things and never ever really wondering if they're connecting with Him. Because their gods don't reveal themselves to Him the way our God does. So when we read the Old Testament law, we recognize that's God revealing Himself, disclosing Himself, and revealing His will. Yeah, David. Yeah, very good. That's a good point. And yeah, like, like in, in the Psalms, usually law is being used more generically just as God's instructions, right? It reveals God, it reveals his will. But, but, think, but think of what a grace that is. Think if you, if you got up every morning and what you believed was your religion, the most important thing in the life, came down to a theological guessing game. I was, I was talking to a friend of ours the other day, good friend. He's a Catholic. And, um, and he said something like, um, you know, I, I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting closer to finding peace in my life. I was like, you know what, that's really kind of sad. Because uh, you can know peace in your life. And, and as I talked to him, his point was, he doesn't have peace in his life because in his Catholic theology, you're, you're never wondering, have I done enough good works of satisfaction, enough confession to earn back my justification that inevitably gets lost. Remember in Catholic theology, you get baptized, that's where you get justified, and then you commit sin, so you lose your justification, so you spend the rest of your life trying to earn it back by going to confession and doing Hail Marys and doing works of satisfaction and good works, and you never really know, do you get that all back? And uh, most people, except for saints, die and they go to purgatory to, you know, Remove whatever the balance left of good works that you didn't achieve to get your justification back. I'm thinking, what a miserable way to live. And thankfully, I had the chance to, to talk to him about the sufficiency of Christ. That that, that means uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in him. There, there's no extra work we have to do. So it's grace. Embrace the law as an echo of God's character. We talked about this too. The, the law reveals the character of God. And so when you're reading your Bible... And you're reading the law and it, it shows you something about the nature of God. That is something you can apply right away in terms of thankfulness, in terms of worship, in terms of embracing his faithfulness or worshiping him, thanking him for his grace and kindness. And, you know, I've had people tell me, you know, yeah, you know, the, the Old Testament is all law and it's God's in a bad mood and the New Testament, Jesus is nice. And it's like you haven't even read the Old Testament. Right. There's grace all over the Old Testament. We just have to look for it. Okay, some pitfalls to avoid. Don't blindly assume the law applies to you. That's pragmatism. You know, don't get in there and go, okay, so this says something about, um, uh, you know, what I'm supposed to do uh, when my neighbor does this. And, you know, there's something about, um, 
muzzling an ox and, you know, and you, and you just, you just kind of come up with some crazy thing, right? Don't blindly assume the law applies to you. Do the hard work of interpretation. Remember, it's part of the covenant and make a distinction. Is this a timeless principle that is applicable or is this something that I need to uh, respect and honor as, as a part of the nation of Israel, but it doesn't directly apply to me uh, the way it applied to the nation of Israel. That's pitfall number one. Pitfall number two is don't make obedience to the law your method of salvation. That's legalism. And again, a lot of Christians think that that was the way to salvation in the Old Testament. Number three, don't ignore the law, assuming it has nothing of value. That's the other end of the spectrum. That's antinomianism. No law. Meaning, uh, I have Jesus, it's all grace, and I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm going to ignore everything the New Testament says about the instructions that God has for me. Okay, so with all that in mind, you tell me if this, I know that was a bit complicated, but just a simple process, okay? How are you going to read the books of the law? First of all, interpret the Old Testament laws in their biblical and covenantal context. Biblical meaning creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So where does that fit in there? How does the law fit into this broader theme of what God is doing? And that helps me see it, its connection to the rest of the Bible. And then their covenantal context. Most of the time it's going to be connected to the Mosaic Covenant, and we talked about that. Number two, discover what can be learned about God. If you learn something about God, that's timeless. God doesn't change. That's something you can immediately uh, you know, grasp, thank God for, apply to your life. Number three, look for timeless moral principles. There are going to be some things you learn um, about God, about yourself, about life, about what's important, about the will of God. And uh, if I find that repeated in the New Testament, then I'm on, I'm on good ground in terms of its applicability. Remind yourself of your inability to keep God's moral law. That's a great thing to do. You should be in a really, really, really depressed mood if you're reading the law correctly. And you put for yourself for a second in the place where you don't know Christ. Uh, um, hypothetically, of course, right? You know, you, you read it and you go, I'm a horrible person. I thought I was doing pretty good until I read the, you know, Leviticus this morning. Right? And it makes you see your need for a savior more. It makes you go into your day thankful for your salvation more. That's a good use of the law. Be thankful that Jesus perfectly fulfills God's law. Um, that he, uh, he perfectly keeps that, that moral law, that timeless law. And, um, and therefore satisfies God's just demands. And then we want to ask ourselves, well, how do these principles inform my Christian life? The, the ones that are applicable. What can, I, what can I gain that day from that? Okay. Can you do that next time you read the first five books of your Bible? Is that simplified enough? There, there's a lot more we could say, but hopefully that, that gives you um, a, a decent process to follow. Okay. Now, with that in mind, uh, actually, the example I was going to do was the Ten Commandments, and I, I knew that, but I went ahead and sort of did it already. So um, how about we do this? Let's, let's just, let's just kind of do this together, Okay. So the first thing we're going to want to do, if, if we come to the Ten Commandments, before we get to the New Testament here, okay, we come to the Ten Commandments, what's one of the, and, and by the way, where do we find the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament? Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, good job, good job, yes, they, they occur two times in our Bible. Why do they occur two times? They are important. Okay, I like that, Brianna. They're important. That's good. Why else do they occur two times? Okay. 
yeah, the audience that got the commands in Exodus 20 are dead by the time Deuteronomy rolls around because most of them died in the wilderness. So God, through Moses, gives the commandments a second time to that new, to, to the children and the, and the grandchildren of the wilderness generation. He's, remember, Moses is going to die, so he's, this is his last sermon, and that's why we call the book Deutero, Deutero, no, I guess tongue twister. It's it's actually Greek, right? Namas Greek Deutero two, right? So it's second law. It's the second giving of the law, right? Okay, so we're going to remember that Exodus twenty, Deuteronomy five. So I'm going to go there, and as I'm reading that, what am I going to think about? I'm reading this. I'm reading these commands. What's probably one of the first things I need to think about when I'm reading the law? Let's follow the simple process. Let's go back here. Let's follow the process that we gain. What's that? Yeah, who's the audience? So who are the audience? Who, who, who's the audience? It's, it's the people of Israel, okay? And what's going on in Exodus 20? Yeah, they're renewing the covenant, okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, they're, they're on the way to the promised land, right? And God's going to meet him there, and he's going to reveal himself, and he's going to... He's going to um, uh, give them some of the stipulations of the covenant, right? Okay. What else? Right, but, but we're looking at the context. So that's right. He is establishing them as a nation, for sure. Yeah, so that, that is relevant. Yeah, recounting their history. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so we've got all that in mind. Yep. Right, they're establishing the covenant. Okay. So we've got that, and now we're looking at these ten commandments. And um, okay, so we got some context. So so the first thing we're not going to do is we're not going to read these and run too far to application just yet, because of the context. Right, it's a covenant. It's to Israel. It's the people of God. This is Sinai. Um, so we're going we're gonna to kind of tap the brake on application. And then we're going to start thinking, okay, now that I kind of know the context, I'm going to ask some questions like what can be learned about God? So looking at the Ten Commandments, what can we learn about God? What's that? Yeah, yeah. In fact, he's going to say that. Okay, yeah, so, so commandment number one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Why? Okay. Do we learn something about God there? There's a lot of things we learn about God there. Uh, uh, we, we call commandment number one and two the, the, it, the command of exclusive allegiance, right? That's what God is, is calling us to, that you would worship me alone and you would, you would follow me alone. 
Okay, so we learned some things about God there. Anything else we, we learn about God? Yeah, there you go. Very good. What else? Yeah. Yeah, God cares about how we talk about him. And, and, and if we look at this, what does it say? It says, um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So we, we want to, is that a stipulation of the covenant or is that timeless? We'll go to the New Testament and find that out. But, but notice God cares about how we talk about him. And, and you know, I, we, we wrote, you know, no swearing using the Lord's name. But, but you know, if... Um, if I talk irreverently about God, too casually about God, that's getting close to misusing his name, isn't it? Right. That's right. That's right. Okay. What about some timeless moral principles? Well, you guys have already done the hard work there, right? We, we checked out the New Testament, and with the exception of the Sabbath, we see that all of those are repeated either verbatim or in a similar form. So those are, those are timeless principles. This is, um, this is a reminder that, that these laws, these instructions are what we call moral law or timeless moral law, meaning they, they are not just unique to Israel but for all people in that way. Um, we can remind ourselves of our inability to keep God's moral law. I mean, how, how are you? Th- this is Ray Comfort's whole thing, right? You ever watch Ray Comfort? You know, and, and uh, have you heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I can't do it as fast as Ray Comfort. He talks so fast, but, you know, have you heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, you know, and, and uh, well, what are some of them, you know? And, da, 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 and, and he says, well, how are you doing with those? Have you ever, have you ever uh, gotten angry with your brother? You know, have you ever used God's name in vain? Oh, yeah, I used God's name in vain 97 times today. You know, some of these guys are really honest. And, and, then, and then Ray Comfort turns it around and he says, so by your own admission, you're a blaspheming, lying, adulterating, you know, using God's name in vaining, you know, person, right? And, and then he uses that, you know, to say, if God were to judge you by his law on judgment day, how would you do? And half of them say, oh, I'd be just fine. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but that but that's the point, right? We we can look at that and say this is designed to indict us, and see our need for a savior. And then, we are thankful that Jesus perfectly fulfills God's law. He keeps the the commandments for us perfectly, and the Bible develops that. Um, and then, uh, understanding this is not a path of salvation, but this is a a um a a guidance for sanctification we can say well how can i how can i use this as a um as some instructions for how i'm going to live my life today okay all right well that that went faster than i thought it would but that's because we did all the hard work earlier so okay questions Mm-hmm. 
Right. Uh, when he references Deuteronomy 24, you mean? I, I think, I mean, call me crazy, I think you can go back to Deuteronomy and make the exact same point that Jesus makes in Matthew 19. I don't think Jesus is saying anything unique from what God tells Moses in Deuteronomy 24. He's merely repeating and, and maybe emphasizing what God told Moses in terms of Deuteronomy 24, why there was a regulation in regard to divorce where people were getting rid of their wives because they found some uncleanness in them and then they would go marry someone else and they divorce that person. They want to come back to the other. And God says, Moses, you need to, you need to put this regulation in place. Um, and, and it's clear from the context. Jesus' point in Matthew 19 is, you know, that wasn't God's original design. That was a concession because of the sinful hearts of the people. And that's what Jesus says. He says, this isn't God's idea. This is a concession because of the people's hardness of hearts. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. He's like, haven't you read the beginning of the story, right? So, I understand it. Moses, God is saying to Moses, it's a regulation to protect the woman from getting kicked around between the same guy over and over and over. Yeah, exactly. But Jesus says, even that was a concession from the beginning. Yeah, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So, yeah, yeah, great question. But, but here's the thing. I, and you, you, you push back if you think this is, this is incorrect, but I think that when the New Testament is referencing the Old Testament, it, it's, it's not coming up with something brand new. It's affirming what the author meant in the Old Testament and perhaps showing us how that's relevant then in light of the New Testament teaching. I don't think that the New Testament authors are, are reinterpreting the Old Testament. So, yes, sir. Understood it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, yeah, so, and, and that's you know, we read it in Matthew five. You know, love your enemy, or yeah, uh, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, the second part of that is not in the Old Testament anywhere. Well, why did everybody believe it? Because the Jews came up with that at some point. So, and Jesus says that's not it at all. So, um, yeah. Are your brains full? Mike looks like it's like, well, shh. I have a friend who's a Presbyterian mm-hmm. elder. Mm-hmm. He was spoke terms with him here. Mm-hmm. I still don't see what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, we don't, we, don't, we don't really go there because of Romans 14. Sure, yeah. Romans 14 is love your brother, love your Christian brother, no matter mm-hmm. Well, and, and those are things that are, I think it's, you know, even if you disagree, I think it's interesting to try to understand where the other person's coming from, yes. because then you can say, okay, you know, they got here because of X, Y, and Z, but, you know, Y was a wrong turn, and so you end up there, but, uh, but no, that, that's charitable, that's, I think that's the right thing to do, so, okay, guys, um, so we've got some homework here, uh, you're going to, you're going to do a, um, 
Okay, so here's, here's essentially what we just talked about. Um, so the two chapters, 19 and 9, are going to talk about the law, how to read the law. And uh, the assignment is 19.1, which is a, it's a shorter assignment, but it'll get you uh, practicing some interpretation uh, based on what we talked about tonight. Okay.